I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me this morning as we turn into the Scriptures together. We're turning again to Matthew's Gospel, to Matthew chapter 13. If you'll turn there with me in the Word of God, Matthew chapter 13. And we'll begin reading in verses 1 through 8, and then we'll stop and jump over to verse 18 and read down through verse 23. So verses 1 through 8 first, and then we'll move over to verse 18 and read down through verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude then stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured it or them. Verse 5, some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Therefore, verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now verse 18, therefore hear the parable of the sower. Jesus begins to explain what is really, in a sense, a riddle, a parable is a riddle, if it is unexplained. But he begins to explain this parable to his disciples, therefore giving it them understanding and meaning. So he says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what has or was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. Verse 20, But he who received the seed on stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Then verse 23, he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, this is the word of the Lord. So we look here into Matthew's gospel. Today's sermon is entitled simply, The Parable of the Souls. The Parable of the Souls. But our attention amidst these souls is really this morning going to be on the seed. Upon the seed. And here in Matthew chapter 13, as we've been studying the last number of weeks together, we've been seeing that this in the life of Jesus is a pivotal turning point in his ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been clear. He has been bold. His message is, is authoritative. 
and it is direct. And over the course of time, that authoritativeness and that directness has only brought, among those who do not believe, increasing hardness, increasing hostility, increasing ridicule or scorn against the word that Jesus has. There's scorn because of his birth. There's scorn because of his, quote, lack of credentials. There's scorn because of where he comes from. There's all types of reasons for why the scorn is given towards the ministry of Christ. But as we look here in Matthew chapter 13, we see that it is an important turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And the key turning point is this, is that he turns to teaching in parables and not simply a direct lesson or a direct authoritative message. So he moves to parables, chapter 13, verse 10. The disciples noticed this distinction, and we saw this last week. We looked at that parenthesis, verses 10 through uh, 17 last week. The disciples asked Jesus, why such a change? What, what are you doing? They noticed this. Why do you speak, verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? So this is a question that the disciples themselves are curious about. Let's remind ourselves a parable is a word picture, an illustration, uh, even a metaphor, or even enlarged to a story, a fictional story that comes alongside a spiritual truth. It describes a spiritual truth, and it is placed alongside that common reality to amplify that spiritual truth. It comes from the two Greek words parabolo, meaning beside or alongside, and to throw and to lay. So something that comes alongside of an existing entity. For example, we use this word para in everyday language. We, in law, will say a paralegal. Um, in the military, we will say paramilitary organization. They're not the military. They're a para. They come alongside and assist the military. They are not the legal experts. They come alongside the legal experts. Even in the life of the church, we use this. They're not the church. That ministry is a parachurch ministry. Well, here Jesus is teaching in parables. He's coming alongside the truth, much of which he has already taught. And now he's revisiting it, nailing it home through a parable, a story that comes alongside the truth and continues to call those into Christ who have hearts to hear, hearts that are open, ears that hear. We see the common refrain is he that has ears to hear. Let him hear. And yet, those who've already hardened their heart against the person of Christ, the message of Christ, only continue to be hardened. Again, recapping on what we saw last week in our study together. So Jesus used simple parables to illustrate, as we will look at the preceding parables beyond today. Today is the parable of the sower or the souls. But beyond today, he will give other parables. For example, using common Everyday illustrations in life to illustrate deep spiritual truths about salvation, the kingdom of God, today emphasizing the word of God. Jesus drew out the meaning and significance of faithfulness by picturing a wise and faithful steward in one parable. He highlights prayerfulness and the discipline of prayer by picturing a persistent widow who refuses, in a sense, to cease he captured the joy of salvation in a series of parables in Luke chapter 15, for example, in the parable of the lost coin and kind of culminating in the parable of the lost son. 
highlighting the joy of salvation, the grace and love of the Father. And these stories bring us in and give us insight into the heart of God, His character, and His personality. To teach about the the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the ugliness of of self-righteousness, He used a proud Pharisee to illustrate self-righteousness, and He used a remorseful, pitiful sinner a tax collector, a publican, to show and exemplify, to teach us about true repentance. So here's our point. Jesus is intentionally choosing the medium of parables to teach the truth, to separate the goats from the sheep, to separate the admiring crowd from his faithful disciples, giving the refrain at the end of many of them, let he who has ears to hear, let him, let them hear. Here, I want to make a note here that's obvious, but I just want to remind us as we talk about the parables of Jesus. In fact, many uh, churches, as their pattern, their custom, if they're not going through a gospel, to simply maybe do a, a sermon series on the miracles of Jesus, the parables of Jesus. Well, we find ourselves in a mini-series within a series, right? We're coming into the, the parables of Jesus, and we'll be here for a few weeks So we find ourselves within a series, within the series of the Gospel of Matthew. But I want to remind all of us that Jesus did not invent the parables. I know you know that. But when we look at the scope of Scripture, we see that parables were used in the Old Testament by the prophets. Maybe the most famous is the prophet Nathan, who comes before King David. Again, parables were used to penetrate people's initial walls that they put up to the truth. Or maybe there is a point that needs to be made in the use of a parable is the truth has been tried, it's been given, there's a hardness of heart, there's a wall that's been put up, but the parable circumvents that, and it's like a, excuse the metaphor, a grenade that is tossed in that goes off later. It dawns on them after the fact. They don't realize the power of the story, but as they begin to mull it over, they are awakened to the truth if God grants that light of what the truth reality is. So, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 4, we see the prophet Nathan comes to David, and instead of simply just marching into the throne room of David and into his royal court and simply saying, you are the man, you are the man, David, he comes in as if to bring a word, nonchalantly, but yet he is the prophet, and any time the prophet of God would come to the king, he knew there's a word from the Lord more than likely coming with the prophet. And so Nathan begins by saying, let me bring you, in a sense, what David thinks is the frontline news of the day. Nathan says, let me bring to you, King David, an injustice that has been found in your kingdom. So it's a parable, but yet it's the truth, isn't it? And yet King David doesn't even realize it until, I believe, in my own reading of the Scripture, and just, again, this this is me, this is not the authority of Scripture, that all at the same time, David begins to feel with increasing weight, even before Nathan says, Thou art the man. No sooner does he say, Where is this man? Let's deal with him justly. No sooner do those words escape his mouth, and just before Nathan says, The prophet says, David, you're you're the man. It it, it dawns on him. He's exposed. He, He is not repented of his sin. He's trying to pretend that if he just ignores it, it'll go away. So we see examples in the Old Testament where prophets would come, giving an illustration of the truth to which we can previously be blinded to. So a parable 
that Jesus uses was placed alongside reality, and it emphasized a particular reality, a particular truth that Jesus wanted to communicate or to get across. And that parable not only brought the truth, it brought out the truth, it communicated it in a different way. And that is what Jesus is doing here. Now, at this point in our text, Jesus turns his attention away, ultimately, from the nation Israel. That's why we say it is a huge hinge in the Gospel of Matthew. He begins to prepare his disciples alone. His attention is increasingly upon their discipleship. Jesus, the master discipler, puts the quality of his time now towards those that will remain with the stewardship of the kingdom message. He is now turning his attention away from mass miracles, mass designations, mass messages. And now in the Gospel of Matthew, he begins to increasingly teach parables. There are always some present, but his focus is to train his disciples for the ultimate rejection that will come. The masses are rejecting his person, they're rejecting his message, but they will ultimately reject him in the form of the cross. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for that rejection. And friends, I just want to remind us this morning that the cross is a repudiation to the world. The cross of Christ, as we are disciples of Christ, is a reproach in a sense, but it's a reproach that we gladly boast in. The only thing we boast in is Christ and the cross of Christ. Paul tells us this again and again, and this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Do not boast in yourself. Do not boast in your circumstances. If you've been blessed by the common providence of God and common goodness of God, do not boast in that. The only thing we boast in as his disciples is the precious gospel, the message of Christ and him crucified. Here in our text, Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 set the scene. If you'll look there with me again, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Remember, same day what? Same day is what? Well, if you go back into verse, verses 38 down through verses uh, 50 of, of chapter 12, this is that passage uh, that where the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus for a sign. And then he gives the parable, if you will, the account of an unclean spirit, goes into a man, he goes to the dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. So then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, it's whole, it's swept, it's in order. And he goes, verse 45, and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. The last state of that man is worse than the first. And notice Jesus says, so shall it be with this wicked generation. Now, on the same day as this, verse 46, his family is embarrassed by Jesus. We talked about the reproach of the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm pouring my attention now to my disciples and their training, their understanding of my kingdom, my message, my person. But Jesus' natural family hasn't gotten that message fully. And notice verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Yeah, wrap it up, Jesus. You know this posture. You're, you're in the middle of, the, the preacher's in the middle of the sermon, and people are, hey, wrap it up. Some of you are already there, facetiously, all right? You're already like, okay, what's for lunch today? Wrap it up. It, it begins to get communicated through body language, restlessness, getting up and down, that type of thing. That's exactly what Mary and his brothers are doing. They're knocking on the door, <clears throat> coughing, interrupting him. They're standing outside, and they seek to speak with him. In that text, it means to instruct him. 
uh, to edify him, to help Jesus understand, to bring some insight. Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? Then one of them said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And he answered them and simply said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples. Key focus there. Towards his disciples who've heard the message, who believe by faith, who are taking up their cross daily and resting in what he will do for them. They're following after him. They are saved by faith. And he points to them and he says, these are my disciples. Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, my mother. Do you see the distinction? Jesus is turning his attention, and it's on this same day, as we move into chapter 13, verse 1, on the same day. No sooner does Jesus say this. Later on, maybe that afternoon, Jesus then goes out of the house, that very house, where he's been teaching these things. He's being interrupted, and he now moves from the crowd, and he sat by the sea. Again, verse 2 sets the, the tone for us or the scene, and great multitudes continued to be gathered together to him. So that he got into a boat and he sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. They're coming to continue to hear the message, to maybe see a miracle, to hear Jesus speak. But yet there's a weird, sordid fascination at times with the truth, being exposed to the truth, but yet commenting on the truth. It's like people who watch YouTube videos about the things of Christ or, or, or the truth of Christ or maybe attend church from time to time, but they do not commit. They sit in a posture of critique. They sit in a posture of commentary. They want to be entertained. They want to be enlightened. They want to see a clip or a video, but yet they leave scorning, commentating, mocking about the message. So notice what Jesus does here. He makes himself an unusual pulpit. He then gets into the boat, verse 2. He climbs into a boat and he anchor, that is anchored to the shore. And he begins to now speak in parables. We see, first of all, this first parable is the parable of the sower, the soils. It's also taught not only here in Matthew 13, but it is also taught in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, and Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. In two of the gospel records, this parable of the souls comes in first place because I believe it is a key watershed parable of all the parables. It comes first because of its importance. And what it shows and what it teaches us is that people will will have to reject the claims of Christ. They do reject the claims of Christ, that he claims to be the Messiah who who fulfills the promises of God. And when they hear it, their hearts harden Against, against it. Look with me again in verses uh, 3 through 9. When you look at verses 3 through 9 and verses 10 through 17, Jesus is intentionally explaining to his disciples that he has designed these parables to not be understood by all. And so this points us, as we saw last week, to the sovereignty of God, that God reserves the right to judge, to bring judgment, not only in the day of judgment, in the throne of judgment, but also any time the word of God is preached. That God and his administration of his offering of the gospel is simply, yes, the message is all, any, whosoever can be saved. Absolutely, at any time. And yet those who respond are those who are called of God. The gospel message is clear, it's plain, it's public. We'll see more about that in just a moment. But yet God in his sovereignty 
in the ministry of Jesus here moves from clear, authoritative teaching and preaching to parables to continue to feed the sheep, but yet to intentionally deny the opportunity for light being given to those who have already hardened their hearts and scorned the message of the Word of God and of the gospel. Friends, what this does is, for us as believers in this new age, this covenant of grace, the age of the church, is this gives confidence to our teaching and preaching ministries. We preach the word faithfully. We preach it boldly. We preach it clearly. We are not those who think we know who will be saved and won't be saved. That is not our job. Our job is to herald the gospel and trust that God will bless his word. As we look here into this text, we ask this question, how does the harvest that the picture here in this parable is given to us, how does it grow? The harvest here is a picture of the people of God. It is a picture of the kingdom of God in that sense. So number one, we see the sower faithfully sows. The sower faithfully sows. Now, the context by which we see today's message is understood in verses 18 through 23, Jesus' explanation that there are four types of of soils, and only one out of the four receive the word. Don't miss that. That is the context by which we will look at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And I want to submit to you at the beginning of the message that this is not four types of hearers uh, this morning. I don't think it would be, just so you know, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion, gross manipulation of the text to, as believers, kind of remind ourselves that these are four types of hearers and to make sure that we're not following after uh, these patterns in our own coming to hear the Word of God. But, but that's not Jesus' message here. These are four types of hearers, and yet only one hears and only one is saved. Only one has the soil that receives the Word of God. So these are unbelievers, three categories of unbelievers, and one that is the category of the children of God who hear the message preached. The seed of the Word of God finds good soil, and they trust and rest in it, as we sang this morning. Speak, O Lord, until your church is filled with your glory. Notice with me verse 3, the sower faithfully sows. Verse 3 tells us that there is a man, and I have no doubt that as Jesus is on the side of there on the boat, he's pointing to these illustrations that are very natural, and it could very probably have been, see the man over there in the field, a visual illustration. This is common, just like many of you and I, we pass by farms on the way to get here to church this morning, cows and agrarian uh, context and crops and those types of things. A sower went out to sow. Now notice in verses 18 through 23, Jesus does not tell us more about the sower. Notice that there is very little description about the man or the agent or the vehicle of the sowing of the seed. In Jesus' explanation to his disciples, he identifies the seed, he identifies the soul, but this particular parable, right here in these verses, he does not identify the sower. And I believe that that is intentional. I believe that is important for us to understand. I believe it allows the parable to speak to those of us who are disciples of Christ and followers of Christ. It points us to the fact that we are called and even commissioned. We are sowers as we follow Christ as his disciples. We are those who sow the seed. In the sense, in the same way that this man is a sower, he is a farmer. We are spiritual farmers. I believe that the lack of emphasis is because it's not important. It's just the act of faithfulness that is there. 
Now, in American culture, we love our sowers, don't we? We love our farmers. Here's what I mean by that. We have cult personalities. We have, we have our favorite speakers and teachers of the Bible. We have curated digital worlds where why we can be notified on the latest sermon by our favorite, uh, uh, those who preach and teach the Word of God. Or we can get an email a notification or a, an alert, uh, a signal that says a latest message or a new, on our podcast, the newest upload, all those types of things. Helpful, no doubt about it. But as Paul says, church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have to be careful. We must guard our hearts against a worship of the sower. When Jesus gives us this parable, the emphasis is not on the sower. But yet, think about it, in our world today, in our, our land today, in the church today, we tend to put little emphasis on the soul, little emphasis on the seed, and much emphasis on the sower. But not so with Jesus. We see here in this example that we are sowers. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18. I want you to just turn there with me briefly just to kind of remind ourselves of the commission we've been given. I've told our church a few times, many times already, if you ever wonder what is the mission of Grace Church, it's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We can never get away from this commission that God has called us to. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because of this fact, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is what sowing the seed looks like, church. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is our calling, church. This is what Jesus is describing in this parable. A sower goes forth to sow. God has ordained that all of his disciples and his followers be sowers of the word. This is our calling. This is our commission. One author says it like this. Church, sow the seed until God is glorified. Sow the seed until Jesus is magnified. Sow the seed until the mission is satisfied. Sow the seed until the church is edified. Sow the seed until Satan is horrified. Cheesy, I know, but he nails it home. This is our task. Day after day, week after week, to preach Christ and Him crucified. And here, as we see in this text, the emphasis is not put upon the human personality. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know what he wore. We don't know about his personality. We don't know where he lived. We don't know anything about him because the point is not him. And church, I want to remind you as we serve Christ, the point is not me and the point is not you. The point is Christ and his word. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul was being accused of that, that he had a personal ministry. In fact, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, some of you are of the camp of Apollos, some of you are of the camp of Cephas, some of you are of the camp of Jesus, some of you are of the camp of, that you've reduced being a disciple of Christ to division and camps. And Paul says, I'm glad I baptized none of you, so that you can't take me and say, we're of the camp of Paul. 
So Paul's rebuking them, but what he's rebuking ultimately is cult personalities. You've taken humble servants of God, good servants of God. Apollos is great. Cephas is great. Of course, Christ is great. But here's the point. Paul uses these divisions in saying God doesn't want division in his church. We are united in Christ. And so Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to say we preach not ourselves. Church, I just want to remind all of us that we live in a world that wants you to preach yourself. Your flesh wants to preach yourself. Satan will lead you, influence you to magnify your name above God's name, to talk about you, to talk about your need, to, to just preach the message of you. But what we see here is that our platform is not to stand upon Christ to preach ourselves, but to deny ourselves to preach Christ. That is what God has called us to do. This text is a rebuke to all of us who are not sowing the seed, by the way. We are called to be sowers of the gospel, sowers of the word of God. But notice as we see the simplicity of this text, behold, a sower went forth to sow. Jesus gives in his explanation in verses 18 through 19, he makes clear that the seed is the word of God. As we see that, as we hear that, think about what is being sown today. Not only is the seed being sown, but much more than the seed is being sown. In one sense, it could be what I just referred to, preaching of self. Or you could say it like this, uh, man handling the seed, turning it into, we hear a lot about these things today, don't we? Artificial seed. We hear things of this, the, the, the seed is being edited, genome projects, and all these different types of things. The seed is being modified, just to make a parallel. Listen, in the life of the church, our job is not to enhance the seed. Our job is not to add to the word of God or the person of Christ or the gospel. Or our job is not to subtract from the message preached or the person of Christ. We're neither to add nor to subtract. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says, Romans chapter 1 Verse 16, here's the point, unless you haven't got it already this morning. What are we to do? We're to tell the gospel. We're to communicate the gospel. We're to preach the gospel. We're to share the gospel because we are disciples of Jesus. What is a disciple of Jesus? Simply one who sows the seed. It didn't originate with us. It was given to us by grace, and we delight to be simply spiritual farmers who sow the seed given, the entrusted, treasured word of God. And we have been commissioned to take the God-given seed and to simply sow it. Now, how does this encourage us before we move to point number two? Simply this. Friend, you're not in charge of the results. You are not in charge of the results. Recently, I was in that wonderful spiritual mecca of Sam's Club in Knoxville. Yes, Sam's Club, where deep spiritual truths are communicated every day. No, I'm just kidding. But I was standing there in line, and on the wall, up above on the wall, I believe it was Sam Walton's wife who had a, a point here. And here's the point. A successful harvest, this is my paraphrase, a successful harvest is not upon the harvest brought in each day, but upon the seeds that have been planted. The hope of the future, the hope of what we're doing is in the seeds being planted. What do I mean by that in gospel ministry? What is successful preaching? What is successful broadcasting of the seed? This sower simply sticks his hand, and in this day, simply 
does this number right here, he is broadcasting the seed. The seed is indiscriminate. The seed goes on these different types of souls. But what is successful spiritual harvest? That's a great question. If you don't answer this question correctly, many people will stay frustrated in their understanding of evangelism, teaching ministry, and all those types of things. Successful teaching of the gospel, sharing of the gospel, is simply this, communicating the message of Christ. Now, it sounds like I'm reducing that, because in our American mindset, we want results. In fact, we measure success on immediate results. In fact, that's why McDonald's in Denver, Colorado has just eradicated all employees, and now they just have machines doing everything because they are so efficient, they want results, and they've automated everything to the point of result. That's what we want. That's the way our world works, but not so in the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you, if you serve the Lord in a particular ministry, you serve the Lord in a particular way that it's centered somehow upon the Word of God, or you've given faithfully for years in the ministry of missions or local evangelism, or you yourselves have passed out tracts or bought Bibles for someone, you're concerned about someone's soul, and so you buy a Bible and you hand them a Bible and say, can I disciple you in the Word of God? Would you like to memorize Scripture with me? Would you like to learn about the ministry and person of Christ so that you can grow in your discipleship of Christ? And you've not seen tons of or a lot of fruit or results i want to encourage you this morning do not be discouraged your task is not the harvest your task is not the soil your task is to faithfully administer distribute the seed friends that's what the word of god clearly teaches if you don't get that straight though much of our frustration comes from beginning with your pastors right here where is the immediate response from the message? Where is the immediate response of the sharing of the gospel one-on-one? -on -one? Well, successful evangelism, successful preaching is successful only in its relation to the heralding of the simplicity of the person and work of Christ, the message, the meaning of the word, and you trust the Lord to bless the harvest. You trust the Lord in his timing and in his way to bless the act of service as unto him. You know, our modern mission boards would not hire Adoniram Judson today. They wouldn't hire William Carey today, these, these forefathers of the modern missions movement. You know why? Because they couldn't write a letter back home, you know, the support letters. They couldn't write a letter right back home and say, hey, I want you to know a harvest of souls came in this week. 20 souls prayed the prayer. 20 souls were saved this week. Listen, it took Adoniram Judson and William Carey respectively each, about six and seven years, one for six for one and seven for the other, to get one convert to come to faith in Christ. As they learn the language, as they learn the culture, as they begin to communicate the word of God, communicate the message of Christ. And my point simply is, in our American mindset and understanding, they would not have been quick enough, successful enough, that not even the fathers of the modern missions movement would be hired today, if you will, to be missionaries for, for the gospel. We need to see what Jesus is saying, and we need to reframe our lives, our callings, and our ministries to stay encouraged to know what is our task to do and what is his task to do. Secondly, we see the seed does its work. The power is not in personality, obviously, as we often experience as we serve the Lord. The power is not in our clothing. The power is not in our being relative enough. 
The power is not our uh, adding fogs, uh, fog machines or adding all types of things. Not that any of those things in and of themselves are inherently evil. That's not my point. The point I want to make is simply this. The power is in the Word of God. When you minister in the ministry of Christ, as you teach boys and girls, as you preach and serve in different ways that support the Word of God, listen, that's where the power is found. The seed does its work. The problem is, is even in our human flesh, when we come to grips with what the work of the seed is or the work of the Word of God, we don't always like it. Every time the Word of God is preached, hearts are softened and hearts are hardened. There is no in-between. Hearts are softened and hearts are hardened. But see, we only want one response. We only want softened. We want immediate results. And we'll do whatever it takes to get that result now. And friends, that is to our great detriment of tampering with the gospel. Much more we could say there. We, we will not. Verse 3, of course, tells us the sower went forth to sow. Verses 4 through 8 describe where the seed fell. We see that the first identity of the seed, verse 19, is it is the word of the kingdom. What is the seed? Well, verse 19, it is the word of the kingdom. Mark chapter 4, 14 tells us the sower sows the word, the word of God. Luke, in his recording of this parable, Luke 8, verse 11, the seed is the word of God. In the natural world, it is in the life and in the power and the work of the seed that brings forth a harvest or a crop. It's that way in the natural world. And in the spiritual world, it is the same way. It is in the life. It is in the power. It is in the work of God's word that saves the lost. So friends, my point this morning, if you haven't gotten already, is we must be devoted to the means that God has given to us in the way that God has given to us. We can't tamper with what God has called us to do. We are all sowers of the seed, called to preach Christ, called to declare Christ. And there's power in the message of the Word of God. Now, I know you believe this because you come here week after week, but if you read any studies at all, if you see any surveys that come out, annual surveys year after year by Barna, by Ligonier, by Lifeway, by others, they are telling us the same thing, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. That engagement with God's Word as people are polled is less and less and less and less. While engagement in digital devices and other, many other things is only increasing, increasing, increasing. Now, we know those things can be redeemed to read God's Word on. Of course, we understand that. My point is simply this. Most people in the average church today, the only exposure they get to God's Word is not being discipled at home. It's not as they are reading God's Word for themselves. What little they are exposed to is in whatever the preacher preaches. And friends, unfortunately, even that is less and less in our churches even today. Listen, the seed does the work. It saves and it sanctifies. Turn with me just briefly to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And notice how Peter is shepherding the scattered saints. Notice in verse 1 there, he describes them as pilgrims who are being persecuted. So, so Peter's writing this little epistle to encourage and to strengthen the saints who are being martyred and crucified and stoned and scattered for their faith. 
Peter's intentionally trying to remind them of who they are. When you look at verse 1, he says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion, the scattering, if you will, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. That's quite a group of believers. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. He says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So he begins to kind of walk them through who they are in Christ. But notice how he reminds them of the ministry of the Word of God in their lives. Verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says this. He says, Since you have been purified... Your souls and you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now notice how he reminds them of how they do this. Verse 23. You have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed. Notice here, well, what is that? Same distinction we're looking at in Matthew 13. There's the natural realm. There's the spiritual realm. There's the natural farmer. There's the spiritual farmer. There's the natural seed. There's the spiritual seed. Here, he says, it is the word of God which lives and abides forever. He reminds them that they're calling through suffering. They're calling for ministry. They're calling to be the church that loves one another and ministers to one another, comes to the enabling power of Christ through the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Hearing of what? The message of Christ and his atoning work. Now notice how he then moves into verse 24. He quotes Isaiah. He says, Because all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower of it falls away. But... The word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached unto you. This is often why we use this phrase in a refrain following the reading of the word of God. This is the means of salvation, the word of Christ, the means of the regenerating word of God and the sanctifying word of God. Here's our point this morning. The seed has the power. The seed will do its work. We are the sowers and we are simply to sow the seed And we cannot sow what we ourselves do not have. Friends, we must dwell like Psalm 1 describes, that man who drinks deeply from God's word. He's like a tree by rivers of water, marinating in the finished work of Christ, the word of Christ. And therefore, he can sow what he knows to be true by his own, even his own experience. Thirdly and lastly, as we look at point number three here in our text, we see how not only the sower... Not only the seed, but now the soil does its work. Going back to Matthew chapter 13. Now notice beginning in verse 23, But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Brief, succinct statement on the good soul. The one out of the four total that actually does something with the message preached. Has a heart, the soul being a metaphor for the receiving heart with ears of faith, a heart of obedience to follow after the word of God. One out of the four does it. And friends, I want you to know this. You're not in charge of the one out of four. Jesus, again, who is the one who's teaching this to us about the sower the seed, and the receptive heart, the soil. 
It's Jesus. I don't like that. Take it up with Christ. I don't like what you're preaching this morning. Take it up with the preacher, Jesus, who's giving us this message this morning. Friends, our hearts is to accept these things. Our job is to accept these things by faith. And to ask the Lord to remind us of our faithful role in this and to trust that He will do the work of preparing men's hearts to receive the Word of God. We often point to the illustration of Lydia in Acts chapter 17, who was religious but lost, was a moral woman, a good woman, desiring to do right. She attended the prayer meetings. The problem was Lydia was religious but lost. She was doing good things. She just wasn't saved. But in this particular prayer meeting, Lydia, the seller of purple, comes along and the Holy Spirit gives commentary that the Lord opened her heart. And at that particular day, at that particular prayer meeting, she heard the message unlike she ever heard it before. Her heart was good soul. Her heart received the message of Christ, and she followed through in faith and believed the message preached. And Lydia would go on to be used to help establish one of the first early churches, the Gentile church, with her homes that she had and the prosperity of her business. She used it to support the work of the gospel ministry and to house the early church that was there. Our job is not the hearts. And friend, whenever you start trying to think about the hearts and try to predict the hearts of men, you will go wrong every single time. God is glorified when he saves the vilest of offenders, the vilest of sinners. And some of those who on the outside look like the shiniest, most polished, surely they are righteous, surely they are saved, are inwardly dead men's bones. And if you think you can get it figured out, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Don't ever count anyone out. Don't ever think you know someone's determined salvation. You just preach the word and you point them to Christ and you allow the Lord through the Holy Spirit to do the soul work. Our job is to sow the seed of the word, to be faithful to that. Turn with me briefly to James chapter 1 and verse 21. As we think about the seed doing, excuse me, the soul doing its own work through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. James chapter 1 Verse 21, James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives his commentary on this as well. And we'll conclude with this passage here. He gives exhortation in how we are to engage with the message of Christ, the preaching of the word, maybe by ourselves as we feed upon the bread of God. When Jesus says, Matthew 4, man is not lived by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. James gives his commentary here, James 1, 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Friends, it's able to sanctify your soul. Now notice how James begins here that there is, in a sense, a, a heart posture towards the word of God, a posture that the psalmist models for us when he says this, Father, would you search me? Search me, O God, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, try me, know my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me into the truth. The psalmist models what James is describing here as we think about the preparation of the soul, the preparation of the heart. The one thing we can control is our receptivity of saying, Lord, speak, teach, and whatever you tell me today through the messenger this morning, I will obey it. As long as it's your truth, I can see it in God's word, I will obey it with all of my heart. Now notice how James says here, lay aside all sin, filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive 
with meekness. The implanted word which is able to save your soul. That implanted word is the same idea, the seed that he's describing in Matthew 13. Then he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke's gospel, he says, why do you say unto me, Lord, Lord, and don't do anything that I say? Not do the things that I teach, the exhortations that I give to you to come to me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And yet you will not do it. You're resting upon your righteousness. You're resting upon your commentaries upon the word of God for life and light and salvation. And yet you will not come. Oh, Israel. Oh, Israel. How I would have desired to bring you together as a mother hen brings in her chicklets, if you will, the little ones among her. And yet you would not. Yet you would not. This is why Jesus is speaking to them in parables. And so he says, but be doers of the word and not simply hearers only. Friends, the point of what we're doing here this morning is not me, but it's you and God. The point of what we're doing here this morning is not the messenger. As I emphasized earlier about the, 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 all the things about the sower, we don't, that's, not the, that's the least important part. The most important part is you and what you've done with Jesus. The most important part is you and your growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most important thing about what we're doing here this morning is your faith and your growth in Christ, your desire to glorify Him, and you're receiving this Word and obeying it and following after Him as a disciple of Christ. Be doers of the Word. And not hearers only. Notice here, deceiving your own selves. Listen, deception is wicked. Liars are evil. Swindlers are the worst. We think about people who, who deceive elderly people out of their earnings because of through some type of machination or story. They're, they're a swindler. They're a thief. We think of those who deceive are the worst. But the worst deceivers are those who deceive themselves. The worst deception that we experience, let me put it like that, the worst deception that we experience is not what someone else does to us, but our deceiving of our own hearts. And that's why James says, listen, do not deceive yourself. How do we know if we're doing that? Am I obedient to the message preached? Am I obedient to the, the gospel? Do I sow the seed? Do I live by faith, walk by faith? Is Christ working in me, sanctifying me? Do I love him more and more? Do I look to him, the author and the finisher of my faith for my joy, my sustenance, my satisfaction. Then James says this, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. There are those who maybe not look in the mirror. James is saying they look in the mirror, but there are those who receive seed, but the evilness of riches, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this life, quickly begin to enter in and say, yeah, 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 we're done with that. Check. We've done our Sunday morning duties. We're on to do our business. We're on to advance our kingdom. We're on to the next business plan. We're on to the next opportunity. We're on to lunch. We're on to activities. Sunday, this is our day. We just move on to other things. We hear the word. We say amen. We respond emotionally. But there is no follow-through obedience in our life. And James, brothers and sisters, says, do not deceive yourselves. This is a self-deception. He is like a man who looks into the natural glass and yet forgets. He is a forgetful hearer, verse 25. Then he moves on, verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious 
and he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is useless. I want to make a connection here, a conclusion, as we think about our tongues and the sowing of the seed. Friends, we are not here in this life to preach ourselves. The world lives for self. The world advances self. We would say it like this, in this fallen Genesis 3 world, it is a norm to advance me, myself, and I, but not so with Christ. The only thing we see in the Word of God that comes before self is simply to deny ourselves. It's not self-actualization. It's not self-love. It's not self-esteem. It's not self-anything. Jesus simply says, deny yourself, take up your cross, become my disciple, follow me, and sow the seed of the kingdom, sow the seed of the word of God. Well, friends, this is the parable of the sower. The sower, the seed, and the soil. May God give all of us soul that receives his truth, his word, and may God help us to repent of our lack of obedience and communicating the gospel, holding to the gospel, resting in the gospel, and making our lives about ourselves. Friends, may the Lord use us to bring a harvest into his kingdom. And I want to close with this. This is a specific application. When is the last time, two things, when is the last time you have communicated the word of God or the gospel? And when is the last time someone has with you? Think about it. Even your friends who are Christian friends, think about how often do you actually talk about your hope in Christ or the word of God? We talk about March Madness. We'll talk about our hobbies. Uh, we'll talk about our, our joys. Because that's exactly what we do. We talk about our joys and our delights. We talk about what thrills us. Is the word of God ever in that? Is the gospel ever in that? Well, may the Lord apply his word and help strengthen his church and help our hearts to be soul that receives the truth. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these vignettes that point us to greater, deeper, spiritual gospel truths that connect to the kingdom of God. Father, as your disciples, we live for one thing, and that is to advance not our kingdom, but your kingdom. And every day it's a battle. We echo Paul and his lament, a wicked man that I am. The things that I want to do, I often don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I often do. Father, would you give us repentance? Would you give us grace to recognize our sin, to confess our sin, and Lord, to follow through in faith and obedience as your kingdom disciples right here, 2023, right here localized, right here in Kingston, Tennessee, in Roan County, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Would you help us to live for the very purpose you have called us for, for such a time as this? We love you, Lord. We love you for your gospel. We love your word because it shows us Christ. It teaches us about Christ, about God. Father, we pray that you would call our attention to be faithful in spreading the seed of the word of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.